Research folks, welcome to our fifth episode. I'm Christina Peterson, and I am phoning in from St. Petersburg, Florida, in this podcast where we take a shallow look at some deep topics. And I'm joined by my partner in podcasting, Laura. Hi, everyone. I'm here from California. Um, putting our minds to work on this topic of mindfulness that we're getting into this week. And Laura, do you have anything that we, you think we should uh, kind of cue for our, for our listeners about mindfulness this week? Um, sure. We're going to get into this deep dive with two of our most mindful friends. <laughs> um, and then we're going to talk a little bit about some of our favorite things to do, both mindful and both not <laughs> in our roundup. Um, so let's dive in. Well, welcome to our deep dive segment on mindfulness this week. Um, Based on the slightly lower octave of my voice, I am currently practicing mindfulness underneath a weighted blanket while we are about to discuss um, what is mindfulness with two experts um, and kind of get to the bottom of what seems to be right now a really popular way of getting away from digital devices. But as we'll talk about, you know, some of the most popular apps are in fact mindfulness apps. So it's a way to bring us back into things that distract us as well. And we have two guests this, uh, this episode, um, Alan Brown and uh, he'll, Alan, would you say a little bit about yourself? Sure. I am uh, a mindfulness educator in uh... K-12 school settings. I teach um, kids to meditate and teachers to meditate. And then I also run a teacher training program with a group called Mindful Schools for um, for teachers who want to learn how to teach mindfulness to kids. And then, Laura, I'll let you introduce our second eminent guest. Yes. Um, so I think <laughs> I've known our second guest for almost 20 years now, but she was friend of ours at Duke, a roommate of mine while we were there, um, but has spent the better part of a decade plus um, exploring and traveling um, and doing some mindful and meditation related activities and retreats. So our friend Patra is here with us. Hi, Patra. Hi, how are you? Um, Patra, do you want to just say a little bit about what you've been doing lately? I mean, I know you just got back from Nepal and India, but just tell us a little bit. Sure. I actually uh, discovered meditation by accident when I was backpacking through Burma and I went on a two month retreat and loved it so much that I decided to change uh, my life and basically have spent the majority of the past nine years on intensive meditation retreats in Asia. Yeah. So, and, uh, and then I guess the only other background is I know Alan from when we were at the University of Chicago together for a brief period. Um, where I think we practiced the opposite of mindfulness. <laughs> I think it was it was like an intense, it was. you know, kind of engagement with critical. I was going to say, 
<laughs> yeah, I was going to say that when I lived with Patra, it was our senior year and we were like applying for jobs and determining our future. Yeah, and having parties and <laughs> right. doing the opposite of mindfulness meditation. <laughs> but look how much we've grown since then. I know. <laughs> or at least some of us have. Um, so I'm wondering if you can both just, you know, you might have slightly different perspectives towards this, but it'll be interesting to see kind of what your responses are just to this general question of like how you would define mindfulness, you know, someone to someone who's kind of new to that concept, how would you explain it? Um, yeah, mindfulness is, uh, it's an interesting word because uh, it, it means a lot of things to a lot of different people. And, and, you know, it's kind of, especially given the extent to which it's used now in kind of popular media, popular culture, as you guys are referring to. But um, I think the the easiest definition, one of the one of the most famous definitions, is John Kabat-Zinn, who is the founder of mindfulness-based stress reduction. He says mindfulness is paying attention on purpose to the present moment without judgment. And I think it is kind of uh, an easy way to think about it. That is, when we are paying to what's when we're paying attention to what's happening right now, that could be in my thoughts. It could be in my body and my senses. It could be paying attention to my emotions, but like what's happening in this moment and not having to make something else happen, not having to push away what's happening or hold on to what's happening forever and ever because it will change. But just like what's happening right now, can I just notice and, and be aware of what's happening? It's kind of a, a quality of observing things as they are rather than trying to do anything specific or achieve any particular state. And I think what you've just described is why I'm so bad at mindfulness. <laughs> I think <laughs> I need a lot of help like doing exactly what, so we'll get more into that later. Like I, I think that I could personally use some help getting to that point. Um, that I really struggle to like have that attention and focus, but I guess that's, that is the entire point of, you know, adapting these types of practices. Patra, is there any, like anything that you would add or like, can you tell us a little bit about how you would see that term? Sure. I mean, I think Alan did a great job introducing the term mindfulness. For me, it basically means penetrative awareness of what exactly is happening in the present moment and just accepting things without like or dislike. So if you happen to, you know, you don't have to be sitting alone in a room in deep silence with no one else talking to be mindful. Mindfulness is just basically being aware of whatever is happening in the present moment. So you could be driving your car, doing the dishes, picking up your kids and still be mindful. It's just a state of being perfectly present to what you're doing and not letting the mind go back to the past and not letting the mind go to the future. And if it does start thinking, going to the future, just note the thought, thinking, thinking, and then bring it back to the present moment whenever the thoughts fade away. You make it sound so simple. <laughs> it is. <laughs> simple and easy are different things. Yes, that's true. It's a really yeah. simple concept. It's true, but it's, it's it hard in very practice. Hard to do. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yes. Which is why Petra, I mean, I guess it's a continual practice as well for, for both of you, but that's why you've spent all of these years kind of working on it. So you, you know, you had said earlier, like you kind of discovered um, meditation by accident, but like what hooked you? Like what made you want to stay past that initial retreat? Well, I think when I was traveling around the world, just a bit of background on myself, um, I left finance in uh, 
the summer of 2006 and started traveling around the world. And I had a wonderful time traveling through many different countries, exploring different cultures, cultures and cities and seeing beautiful sights. But I think when I discovered meditation, I'd actually read a book and I felt like I actually didn't know that while I was traveling, I was actually looking for answers. And when I read this book, I felt like it suddenly had all the answers to all the questions I never knew I had. And I found such a big difference in just the way I was viewing everything, just even by reading the book before I even re really began to meditate seriously. I didn't realize how unaware of my feelings, my emotions, or anything I was. I found that actually most of the time I was quite distracted. I was multitasking or doing many things at once. And I was extremely unaware of my emotions. I didn't realize at times how easy it is to get so upset over something so small. I actually remember the day after I left um, the meditation center being one of the happiest days of my life. And I was just running errands around town and like, Compared to some of the travels I've done, you know, going through Antarctica and Mount Kilimanjaro, I actually thought that day was the best day of my life because it was the first day that I realized that I was living without anger. And the way I realized this was I was just so much more aware of how I was reacting to things in the present mm. moment compared to how I would have reacted in the past. Like, for example, you know, um, in Asia, the you know, drivers are not so careful and I almost got hit by a car. And in the past, I'm sure I would have been a lot more annoyed, but you know, after reading this book, you know, like I actually laughed and I thought, oh, it's so silly. I know that they're not very careful here. I should be more careful, you know, and you know, because you can't avoid unpleasant situations, but you can control the way you react to them. And I found that aspect of mindfulness to be extremely powerful. Hmm. Yeah. No, so Alan, what about you? I mean, you said, you know, I know you and Christina connected while you were in Chicago, sort of in a different context. And then at some point after that, you can, you kind of focused more on mindfulness to the extent that you became an educator, like in this area. Yeah, I, I actually really came to mindfulness um, in earnest as a first year school administrator. So I was a dean of oh. student life mm -hmm. at a pressure cooker high school, you know, uh, where all the kids are stressed, all the parents are stressed. I was a dean and there all the stress was winding up in my inbox or in my office. Uh, and I was stressed and getting up at four in the morning and waking up and like not being able to go back to sleep and just going to my emails and starting my mm -hmm. day. And it was real, just crazy making. Um, but one of my tasks in, in my role as a Dean of Student Life was to um, try to help with that stress and with that culture of stress and shift that culture of stress. So I got a grant to do a yoga teacher training. You know, I had been practicing yoga. That was something that at least for the duration of those 60 or 90 minutes was really helpful to me. I'm not sure how much I had really extended it out into my life past that particular practice time. Um, but I, I got a grant to do yoga teacher training and it was pretty awesome. Kind of introduced me to mindful movement and, and meditation practices, but I wasn't a coach and I wasn't a gym teacher and I wasn't really able to do a lot of yoga with kids, but I found that some of this breathing stuff, some of this noticing stuff was, I could do that anywhere. I could do that at the beginning mm. of any class. And so I just started playing with it. Kids really responded to it. Teachers responded to it. And so I, I looked at, you know, some more training in just the mindfulness and just the meditation 
And this really important bait and switch that we do in meditation or in, in mindfulness for teachers is that most people come to us because they want to teach the kids. Well, really, if you want to teach the kids you something, to you got to do it. Exactly. You got to do it yourself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you have a You're like practice. reading the handbook, trying to teach the kids. Totally. Right. It's, it doesn't really work so well. So I found myself on a silent retreat as the first part of a year-long certification program. And I did not have any business being there. Like I really was, I just didn't know what I was doing. And I, and I was jumping out of my skin for the first 24 hours. And then all Mm. of a sudden I kind of passed a threshold and it's a, you know, it's a longer story, but when I, when I kind of settled in, when I, when I finally was able to just really sort of, um, be with my experience and allow for my experience to be what it was, which was actually quite unpleasant. You know, I think there's this, um, there are a lot of thoughts for, for folks who are starting mindfulness that it should be a certain way. Like I should be really relaxed and I shouldn't have any thoughts and I shouldn't be planning the future or this or that. And, and actually it was, it was a lot simpler than that. I was, I was overcomplicating it and just letting all those things happen um, was, a, was a totally different level of, of peace with my experience and then a totally different level of kind of peace within my body. And so that was sort of what, what got me started. And, and just that, that shift was pretty dramatic for me. Mm. It, was a, it was a pretty huge learning. And, and I've had others along the way um, that, are, that are really quite profound. And so, so that's made me you know, also want to share that with others to the extent that they're interested in it. I don't like to be an evangelist so much, but you know, for those who are curious, there's, there's good teachings out there for, for finding a, a lot greater ease. Yeah, no, it's I was mentioning to Patra um, earlier that my daughter, who's in first grade, actually just started a mindfulness class at her school. Yeah. And she's it's great. The earlier you start, the better. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it will be a useful tool. And it's it's great that they're incorporating it like into the elementary school curriculum. Um, but she was very suspicious of it at first. She was like, is this just a way to get us to control our bodies? Like she was just, she was like, like they want us teachers. to be quiet. Yeah, yeah. She was like, is this just yeah. like a behavioral tool? <laughs> like basically, like is, in essence, is what she was saying. That's an awesome skepticism because she's right. Like a lot of I've definitely yeah. observed teachers like clang their little mindfulness bell at people. I rang the bell. Be quiet now. Right. <laughs> right. So is that more like be mindful of their my authority? Like what's right? I think rather than probably yourselves. not being yeah. that mindful at that present moment. But. Right. right. Yeah. Hopefully right. she'll also like cross a threshold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. She did not cross the threshold that Alan crossed. <laughs> not yet. Not yet. Yeah, she, she's not just yet. had one class. <laughs> but... but it's a great exa- it's a great example of all the ways that we want to control our experience and that our experience mm-hmm. isn't within our control. And Patra, I love what you said of, you know, the thing that is within our control, you know, or, or where we have some level of choice is how we choose to respond and how we, exactly. we choose to. Yeah. So it's, it's great. So in that sense, it sounds like, I mean, this is what's I, what I find interesting um, from, at least from some of the, the mindfulness. And it's, it's, actually, it's interesting because we just had this come up in, in, in a class I'm teaching, which is about issues of justice and how mindfulness can kind of play into um, larger questions about how we treat mm-hmm. ourselves and each other. But um, uh, it kind of brings me into thinking about, it seems like it's, mindfulness as you both are describing is not just being in the present moment but also kind of um allowing for 
things to happen in a kind of flow state um, in some ways. I mean, I think Alan brought up a really great point earlier when he was saying during his first experience, he expected that things be a certain way. And a big part of his first experience was learning that actually he's not in control of many things and that he did cross the threshold just by allowing things to unfold on their own. Because I think a lot of stress in our lives happens from us trying to think that, okay, if things were only a certain way, then I'll be happy. Or if this happens, then I'll be happy. If I get this, I'll be even happier. Whereas mindfulness, it's just being really aware of what's happening in the present moment and not trying to control the conditions and not saying, well, this should happen. That's the only way I'll be happy. It's just being perfectly present whenever, wherever you are. Yeah, and I think some of my, you know, so I related to what you were saying, Alan, with like sort of that discomfort at first and it being simple, but not necessarily easy, like all at the the same time. Um, because when I initially, the first time that I tried guided meditation, I was working with someone who had like, you know, all this years of experience and expertise and really like wanted me to try this as part of a therapeutic practice. And I found myself kind of like, hyperventilating like I was like I don't think I'm doing this correctly like I don't feel relaxed at all <laughs> like it was making me like more anxious and then we had to like put that on pause <laughs> um but I think that where it has been more useful is maybe kind of more applied um to situations where it's not necessarily trying to like solve all your problems in one fell swoop or say that, you know, just be more mindful <laughs> and everything will be great. Um, <laughs> but it's just introducing it like as a tool that you become sort of better at using <laughs> over time in order to better cope with whatever arises, right? Um, you know, the things that are not within your control that inevitably will pop up. And so I think it was more helpful for me to like think about it that way, you know, in some, at least in my case, where I apparently well, I actually had a very similar experience my first time meditating, I thought um, people meditated, and they felt really peaceful and happy. So when I started, and I had a lot of physical pain, I was convinced that I was doing everything wrong. because I was like, I don't feel peaceful at all. I feel like a tremendous pain. I feel this, I feel that. And a big part of my learning was actually realizing that actually all these unpleasant situations arise. It's just a natural state of being and just learning to become comfortable with the unpleasantness, with the discomfort. And Laura, you were saying, you know, you were hyperventilating, you were worrying if you were doing it right or not. I mean, if that happens, just note all the anxiety and see what's happening to it. Is it increasing? Is it decreasing? Is it changing? Are you mm -hmm. becoming more stressed? Are you becoming less stressed? Is the breath becoming quicker? I mean, it's just a state of being aware. There's no, um, the only way you can really be doing mindfulness wrong is if you're just not paying attention. And actually, <laughs> like when you say, you know, yeah. you, you were aware that you were hyperventilating, you were worrying, that actually shows that you were actually I was aware. incredibly aware <laughs> of your present moment. <laughs> yes, I was very aware. You were very aware. Was, but... So I'm like, actually, you were doing a great job, you know. <laughs> and it brings up, it's, it's, I'm glad that you, that you raised kind of anxiety because it's the one area that we're starting in this field to talk about as the potential contraindication for mindfulness is that, like people with really significant anxiety, it mm -hmm. can, ha can have that reaction, whether that's kind of a, a clinical anxiety sure. or just like in that moment, like mm -hmm. a, a really anxious response. And, and that paying more attention to anxiety sometimes will just ramp it up. But 
Um, but there are also other things we can pay attention to. So like there's, there's this notion that I should pay attention to the thing that's, you know, to this one thing, but actually I have five senses and I have my thoughts and I have my emotions. And in any given moment, I also, by practicing mindfulness, have the power to shift the object of my attention. So in something like anxiety, it may be really helpful, for example, to feel my feet on the floor or open my eyes and notice the colors in the room and orient and attune outward rather than inward. And, mm. and that no one object is necessarily better than another. Um, and so, so that's one of the other things that we, we talk or think about in terms of mindfulness. And, and I think is really helpful for beginners. Again, it's this question of like, I should be doing it this way. I should, you know, like there's a way to get it right or the right thing to pay attention to and the right way to feel when I'm paying attention to it. But, but in fact, there's always choice. Um, yeah. 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 And I think that connects to something Patrick and I were talking about earlier is, you know, Patrick, you were saying like meditation and sort of mindful practices don't just have to happen sort of within a, a formal setting or like a meditation center or like, a, exactly. okay, now it's my meditation time. Like ideally you mm -hmm. kind of want to be able to carry that mindset over to all of your life. Right. So, I mean, I kind of think of mindfulness more as a lifestyle choice. You can choose to be aware or you can choose not to be aware. It's not something that we do just on for one hour a day, we just sit with our eyes closed and we just try to focus on the breath. Um, I mean, obviously, you have far greater concentration. You're probably much more aware of things when you're doing that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you need to carry it after you open your eyes. And what's the first thing do you do? Do you go on your phone? Or are you instantly texting people? Just be aware of that. You know, are you stressed out because during that one hour you were supposed to be emailing so-and-so and doing this conference call for work? Also be aware of that. But Mindfulness is something that sh should be carried out all the time. I mean, it's not something that you have to go to a meditation center to do. It's just a state of being aware of what's happening. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, that. This, and okay. also, uh, you know, the interesting piece is that even as we kind of, those of us who are, you know, like have a kind of a deep end practice or long time practitioners, the natural tendency of the mind is still to be distracted. And the natural mm -hmm. tendency of the mind is, you know, to, to get lost in thought. And I, you know, still now get distracted. I still now get lost in thought. I still now, you know, miss my train because I wasn't paying attention or, you know, these things, they right. still happen. Right. And, and so the other piece too is the, and when those things happen, how do I respond and how do I treat myself? And that sort of kindness that we nurture over time and that acceptance that we nurture over time is kind of the other piece that, that fills the gaps in those spaces too. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds, since both of you have both engaged in, you know, kind of some more serious, dedicated practice, like you've already given a few examples of this, but like, how has this trickled over like into your day to day since, since it's not just like a segmented thing you know what is it helping you cope with or how is it helping you approach the world differently I mean Alan mentioned it at the beginning that um, he actually found it as a great tool to reduce stress um, I know last summer for example I had one of those situations I don't know if you've ever had them where everything in your life is going wrong at the same time and the normal tendency is to get really stressed out really upset and really you know down and 
you know, you start crying and everything, but I actually found quite the opposite was occurring. I saw that my mind was incredibly strong, calm, and stable, despite everything going wrong. And I, that moment, I knew that mindfulness was an incredibly powerful tool and probably the best thing I'd ever done for myself because I knew how I would react if I'd never meditated before. And there was such a world of a difference, like everything was going wrong, but the mind was so calm and stable and just rationally thinking, okay, what are my next steps? Okay, I need to rethink this. I need to redo that. Okay. And then with being mindful, there's also a real element of forgiveness and peace and just being able to accept everything that happens and not trying to control things so much. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say... I have a couple examples that I use maybe most often in my teaching because they're the most extreme examples. Um, one is that I, I was mugged at gunpoint and oh, uh, only a couple blocks from my home. And in as this was happening, and, and again, it's not something that I, I would have expected. It's just, it was a, a moment of, I had been practicing for some time and this was the first moment I kind of realized, oh, there's a big shift here. Um, because the entire time this was happening, I, I was pretty calm and I was, my first response was compassion. I thought, what must be happening in this person's life for this to be, you know, where they are? I, I didn't happen to find in that moment anger or resentment or whatnot. And, and it would be fine if I did. I, I don't want to suggest like, because you're sure. mindfulness practice, you should never be angry at anyone or if bad, you know, when things happen, it, that would be fine too. But just in that moment, I was surprised for myself the way that that was the first response, but that was something that I had been practicing with in particular um, at that time. Or after going on a, a silent retreat, I, I noticed um, just how much I was eating. Cause you know, when there's nothing else to do, like literally not even making <laughs> eye contact with other people can really just only pay attention to like the food and what you're eating and how it feels and how it's digesting and all that stuff. And I just realized, wow, I'm eating way past my hunger. I had never noticed that. And I started paying attention over the week to it. And after I got home, I didn't make any dietary changes. I just was eating more mindfully and I lost like 20 pounds. So it's <laughs> wow. you know, it was just the power of paying attention and actually listening to your own body. Like it tells us a lot all the time. And I certainly was a person who was just really not taking that information in. I, I just wasn't digesting it, no pun intended. Um, that was terrible. I wasn't, <laughs> Literally. Really, I really wasn't. <laughs> well, I think especially in right, the example you gave kind of the everything going wrong at once and then um, with getting mugged as well, it's almost as if you sort of been training for that moment, <laughs> you right. know, and you realize like as you're doing it, mm. like, oh my gosh, like the training like paid off. Like I used to be, a runner way before the days I could probably use like the weight loss benefit <laughs> of meditation. But I, it's like that moment where you're kind of going up the hill and you realize like you're actually doing it with like some flow and, you know, like you kind of yeah. pass that point mm -hmm. of it having to be a struggle or like a conscious effort to get to that point. You're like, oh my gosh, like all the work I put in over the weeks that led to this have allowed me to kind of my body to respond in that way. And it sounds like, like your body and your mind's like prime well, it to becomes respond. more of a habit instead mm -hmm. of something that you have to really practice to try to achieve. Like when you do it over longer periods of time, and especially when you go on intensive practice, it almost becomes like, you know, the way your mind thinks, like you don't have to forcefully try to be mindful anymore. After a certain point, the mind is just naturally aware. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. Hmm. I felt like there was for a minute, like almost it was a fascinating kind of like paradox where you say it becomes unconscious for you to be fully conscious. Yeah, it, it's it's strange, but it yeah. does like the momentum yeah. of the mindfulness, yeah. it really carries, especially mm -hmm. if you go on these intensive retreats, a lot of times you won't even try to be aware but your mind is just in hyper mode, just noting mm -hmm. and being extremely aware of everything as it's arising. Like it can't help yeah. it. Yeah, it's like a thing you can't unsee. Yeah. Mm. Like now that I know that my so mind been... works this way, I can be aware that I'm thinking about the future or I can be aware that this is unpleasant and I'm reacting in this way because it's unpleasant. Or exactly. I can be aware of what's happening in my body because now I know it's there. This kind of brings up the question, which I think Laura and I are, are are interested to hear. We've got kind of a sense of the benefits of mindfulness, but have you experienced any any downsides to mindfulness? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think we we mentioned before the the piece in particular around anxiety, depression as well. I mean, these are the two areas where there's mm -hmm. there's some question that for for some people with those conditions. Um, mindfulness can be really helpful. And for some people, especially the more significant dosages of practice. So like the retreats that we're talking about, like it can be really isolating yeah. to just not be talking to mm -hmm. anyone and not making eye contact with anyone. And some of the, like that social piece is one of the ways that we as humans do actually um, attune and, and that the nervous system reorients and kind of comes back to finding safety. So it can be really difficult for, and challenging for people in those settings at, at lower dosages, uh, less concern. Um, but I, I, I guess that maybe the more popular kind of concern I think that, that I have, or that I see as mindfulness is translated and practiced are some of these misconceptions that we talk about are, are, are people kind of, um, really feeling like, oh, I should be doing it this way, or this is what mindfulness is about when it really isn't. Mm. And in the in the context of schools, I would also say the secularity question, which is certainly a discussion that we run up against mm -hmm. all the time. People are like, are you trying to brainwash my child? Or is this, you know, stealth Buddhism or some of these other things? And while these practices are absolutely integral to, to many spiritual traditions, in particular, Eastern spiritual traditions, though not exclusively, um, you know, kind of mindfulness as we're talking about here is just this innate human capacity for, um, for being aware, being present, being compassionate, being kind to yourself, to others. So it, it isn't that, but I, I know that those concerns are, are very alive and, and well in the conversation. Although I do kind of love the idea of like there being this conspiracy for stealth Buddhism to just take over the school system. <laughs> like the Everyone would the... be so peaceful. Yeah. <laughs> Might not be a bad idea. After this podcast, we're, we're going to have to come up with a code name for, <laughs> for our next plot. Well, check in with Abby when, you know, and see how far she is into Buddhism right. in a couple weeks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely Any... expecting for there at least to be like slightly more patience in that minute where we all get home and then all of a sudden like all the children need everything at once. I think mm. if mindfulness could just like happen. He might need a little bit moment. more time to develop that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be great. And then Patrick, what about yeah. you? Like what have you struggled with? What, have there been any downsides for you? 
Um, I would say at times on intensive retreats, it might feel like there's a downside, but it just feels like there's a lot of upside. Like every time I experience a down, like I get a lot of benefit from it. And sometimes, you know, a lot of it is with the idea, you know, you want everything to go well. You know, a great retreat is where everything goes well and you're very, very happy and you're very, very peaceful. But sometimes the most powerful retreats are the ones that are the most challenging, where you are going through many, many difficult situations that in the past have given you trouble, but you learn how to deal with it in a better way. Yeah. And so, I mean, just for some additional context, like, Patrick, you've gone on retreats that have been like six months long, (laughs) eight months long. Yeah. I mean, most people don't go for that long, but I'm a little extreme in that way. But I could see that. You're in a setting where, you know, um, I'm not sure, like, if everyone's doing retreats like the ones I've been doing, but the ones in Asia tend to be ones where you're waking up very early in the morning. For me, you know, the bell is at 3 a.m. And you're practicing intensively until 9 p.m. at night. And you're supposed to be mindful every single second that you're awake. So it's really quite intensive. And then coming from such a cultural shock, background you know you're going into an environment where you know you have to keep your eyes down you're not supposed to talk to anyone that's basically the opposite of American culture so Mm -hmm. in many ways it can be very very jarring I know when um, I first started looking at meditation retreats and looking at the websites I got really scared because I thought there's no way that could make me happy you know Mm -hmm. but I found just opposite was true then maybe for for both of you I mean I think we also just wanted to um to hear a little bit more about, especially for people who are first starting out, like what's your favorite kind of mindful activity, place to be mindful, way to like initiate um, some kind of mindful practice that you would recommend to others perhaps? Well, I usually recommend that people start with something small that's very manageable and make it a daily practice. Like it's very, very hard to ask someone to spend an hour a day being mindful and to sit alone in a room. But I usually have people start off with five minutes a day. And, you know, you can sit on the floor, try to sit cross-legged, make sure your legs aren't folded on top of each other because they're more likely to become numb. And you just focus on the breath. You can focus on the in and out breath through the nostrils or the rising and falling of the abdomen. If you have trouble feeling the sensations, you can put your hand on the abdomen and just try to be aware. Is there expansion? Is or contraction? Are you feeling tension? And if any thoughts arise, just note thinking, thinking, and then go back to mentally labeling, rising, falling. But I think the most important thing is just to try to make at least a formal practice of at least five minutes a day at the beginning. And then just try to be more aware as you're going out throughout the day. It shouldn't be something that you only do for five minutes a day, even if it is just a formal practice for five minutes a day. Mm, so like how that carries over, see how that yeah. carries over. Yeah. yeah, you might find actually in the next hour after that five minutes, you're actually far more aware and far calmer. Mm. Yeah, and I would just say, I would say two things. Uh, one would be to stick with it for some time, that, that it may really feel difficult at first, or it may feel like, oh, nothing's happening, or was that worth it? But to allow it some time to become a little bit more of a habit and, and to see what that does. And I would also say, you know, it is really challenging and that because there is such a proliferation of really good apps, like there really is a lot of quality content out there. And I know this, there is this paradox in the plugging in to unplug or unplugging to plug in or whatever, you know, that is, Mm -hmm. but 
you know, things like Headspace, 10% Happier, Calm, Stop, Breathe, Think, the, the, the guided meditations there are of really high quality. And I think having that guidance, just having someone to listen to rather than to try to have to like, okay, now I'm going to sit here. Now, what do I do? Is this right? Is this, what is it? Just like, it's totally okay. And people ask us all the time of like, but I can't do it alone. Like I need to listen to something. Great. Listen to something. I, you know, I enjoy listening to things too. Like I, I love when I practice with colleagues of mine and they lead the sit and I'm like, yes, thank you. This is lovely. I could listen to you all day, you know? So mm-hmm. it's good. <laughs> it's fine. And, and in fact, they also are really starting to integrate kind of the science of habit formation very well using those kind of same rewards that maybe the phone does in other ways that are less helpful but you know when it charts your little progress and you get a little star or a check or a badge or a, you know any of those things like it's nice and 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 good like use that to the benefit of building this habit which is actually quite wholesome and, and could be quite helpful well, I've really enjoyed talking with both of you. I think one of the great things about Christina and I, you know, doing this podcast is we actually get to have some deeper conversation with people we know out in the world that are doing interesting things that we might like not have had the opportunity to really delve into before. Um, so yeah. it was great, like being able to have this conversation together. And then Alan, I know I checked out your website briefly. So I mean, since we're such a professional podcast, <laughs> I wanted to allow you to make a plug, you know, to our worldwide listeners. Um, but it's, it's learning to thrive that NYC, right? Is that correct? correct? That is correct. And for people who might be listening that are interested in education, um, mindful schools is mindfulschools.org and, uh, you know, the training Mm -hmm. for bringing this work to youth, which I think is among the most important things that, that we can do, um, is, is, uh, yeah, that's, that's how to find us there. Yeah, no, I really appreciated some of the framing that I saw on your site and just kind of the way that you laid it out just in my quick scan of it. So definitely something to check out. And Patrick, I know this isn't a personal recommendation, but can you just tell us the name of the book that you initially read that like got you started? Sure. Check it out. Sure. It's called In This Very Life by Seda Upandita and Seda is spelled S-A-Y-A-D-A-W. And then space U, and then the last name is Pandita, which is P-A-N-D-I-T-A. Right, so hopefully our listeners are Googling both of those, the website and the book, mm-hmm. now on their own mm-hmm. journey to mindfulness. Um, I want to quickly rec- <laughs> um, just put in another recommendation that a friend gave me, uh, maybe more for a beginner or someone who wants to get started. They recently read a book that just came out called Bliss More, um, and it's mm-hmm. about sort of simplifying the approach to kind of mindfulness and meditation and touches on some of what we talked about today, just that, you know, it doesn't have to be that you're like spending hours in some center, like dedicating your life to meditation. It could be a five minute, 15 minute thing. And um, just kind of walks you through building that, that habit as well. Um, So that might be something else for people to check out. Um, But thank you again to both our guests. Thank you, Alan and Patra for joining us. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's fun to be here. Thank you. All right, Christina, let's round them up. (laughs) So this week, we're going to start off with something mindfulness connected. Uh, We each tried one of the more popular mindfulness apps. So Christina, tell us about what you tried. So I tried Headspace. And um, I will admit that actually, I was a hardcore user of Headspace um, about... A year ago, so I drew mostly on that experience um, in my mindfulness um, uh, sort of challenge, 
And so Headspace is a, a subscription app, although you can get kind of the first 10 um, meditations free. And... <laughs> it's like buy 10 meditations, <laughs> get 10 free. <laughs> yeah. You can do like the first basic 10 and those will kind of like, you know, they like they let you have those. And then if you want to get into ones that are more, um, you know, more focused yeah. on stress or sleep or happiness or I mean, they have stuff, you know, that, you know, like in relation to, you know, if you're um, in different stages of your life. Yeah. And and the you know, the program's been around for a couple of years. I first heard about it in a New Yorker article. Um, so I think we talked about this <laughs> in our. Um, yeah. In our, I can't even remember what episode it is now. But, I mean, I uh, think doing whatever the New Yorker says to do seems like good <laughs> life advice. Well, but it's, I think it was because in it, just like the Fitbit, this, uh, this article was basically sort of saying our phones have become so distracting to us and mm. making us so split and bifurcated in how we, you know, focus our attention that now there's an entire industry of now ways to use your phone to become more mindful. And I was like, so the, right, you know, yeah. so the source of a lot of the stress is now going to be used to sort of help you to, uh, <laughs> to feel yeah, better it's like about if it. You can't be them, join them. <laughs> <laughs> so in my experience of Headspace, um, you know, they have these, they, it, it uses a lot of the things that online apps use, uses, including kind of a, um, when you get, when you go on it, it'll say how many people are, are, you know, meditating right now. Mm. Um, when you turn it on, you, you know, you're told by the, um, you know, the creator of the app, um, yeah. there's a sort of very calming voice, you know, to find a space and, um, you know, where you can meditate and then you just sort of run, you can decide how long you want the meditation to be five minutes, 20 minutes, stuff like that. Oh, so it's adjustable. It is somewhat adjustable. Um, and, you know, and so you can, um, and the goal is sort of the way that it's oriented is that it has these like one-offs that you can do, but then it's really oriented towards these packs that you do. So there's mm -hmm. like the first basic one, and then that unlocks the opportunity to spend money on the yeah, further yeah. ones. <laughs> and <laughs> once you're feeling mindful enough. <laughs> and so when I used it a while back. Relaxed was... enough to open up your wallet. Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah, exactly. I was like, there's like an entire, yeah, I hope there's like an entire one where you're just like, imagine yourself, you know, giving your credit card number to this company <laughs> and then continuing. So, but I actually got into it enough the first time that I paid for a year. Um, oh my gosh. Subscription. I didn't realize you did it for a year. I didn't do it for a year, but I did it for about a couple months <laughs> because it had this thing where it was like you know if you did it every day it was like how many days in a row you've meditated so kind of like right focused. and that appeals to you yes, yeah exactly as we know <laughs> and and the problem is there was a point though when like being mindful was becoming like another chore it was like all right I gotta yeah. be mindful now so I like the you know I like that it was motivating me I do think that actually was very good to just get into that practice because yeah. It taught me some things. There's some really nice, um, there's some videos that they show you in it about different ideas that then you take into it, including kind of the idea that you are not your anxieties, but in fact, you are kind of the blue sky or the sort of things that are constantly drawing your attention or just mm -hmm. the clouds passing, which is an interesting, I think, and pretty yeah. well-known um, idea about mindfulness, which is like, you are not all the things that are distracting you, but you are, in fact, you know, kind of the the thing that's beyond the canvas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think these apps are good for getting into a daily habit and kind of getting people, you know, who want to like dip their toe in the water, kind of hooked in or finding a way to incorporate it 
that's like at their fingertips because they probably like you said do have their phone (laughs) attached (laughs) to them in one way or another anyway so i tried out calm which i think probably has some similar features um and what i liked about it is that all of the meditation chunks were probably only around like 10 or 12 minutes. So it did seem very doable. Uh Um, And they also have like these sets of meditative practices, but it tended to be like seven days to happiness, you know, seven days to no anxiety or whatever. So I thought I would choose the happiness track. (laughs) Why not choose happiness? Um, But what I quickly found was annoying was that I did the first day and they were like, to get to day two, again, you know, give us your credit card information. So then I felt unhappy, like, as I was telling you, <laughs> that, like, I couldn't go further. And so each of them were like that. Like, the trial was only for the first initial day. And then, yeah, you had to, like, move to the next level, you know, of premium services in order to be able to access the rest. Um, but I did also like, I mean, it's very user-friendly interface. It had some good features. It lets you actually switch the voice, mm. which I really appreciated because like the default voice is probably the woman who put it together. But um, contrary to your experience where it seems like you enjoy the calming sort of <laughs> stereotypical meditative voice, I did not enjoy it. <laughs> like she was just very like, all right, now we're going to breathe. And like, I couldn't handle it. But then I tried the other voice, which was like this very normal sounding guy named Todd or something. So I appreciated Todd's voice a little bit more. Um, So yes, there's a lot of like customization available within it. And I think once I get over my initial annoyance of having to pay the fee, I might try it again. Well, I think that's interesting because I the, the the voice on Headspace is like a British male voice. So maybe this says more about our ability to accept <laughs> calming <laughs> male voices than anything else. Um, and uh, maybe, yeah. So I think that's something I we, don't can, know. we can we, we can we probably shouldn't analyze that too no. deeply. <laughs> yeah, let's poke at that later. Um, <laughs> but that kind of goes into some of my um, recommendations for the roundup, actually. It's something yeah, that's been well, on my mind. Another way to relax. So tell us more. So at first, um, because I just want to point out to our Shell Research listeners that Shell Research did very well at the Emmys. Um, several of our <laughs> shows to watch won Emmys recently this year. But I have pushed more toward, I was going to make more Emmy recommendations, but then I was like, no, I got to do my full research on shows right now. So instead I've got some film recommendations from films that I've watched recently um, that I realized the ones that I've all picked out are these really interesting engagements with masculinity right now. Um, And (laughs) so I've got, you know, four films that I've seen that I think are are quite interesting. um, And I think the first is um, a film called The Rider, which is won several independent spirit awards and um, okay. is set on a, um, a reservation in, uh, um, it's not the Northwest, but it's sort of like the Dakota territories, sort of Montana. And um, mm-hmm. it's, it's an interesting film because the main character plays a version of himself. He's a former rodeo rider who experienced a catastrophic brain injury. Um, oh, so is he like trying to get to know his old identity again or? I would say that's a fair description of it. Um, and the, and sort of what does it mean to be a young man who at this age, the thing that he wanted to be 
um, has been kind of taken away from him and what, you know, what does it mean to be um, a working class man? Um, and as you mm. kind of work out over the course, I think it's very, very nicely kind of, you, you get engagement with him as an indigenous man, but not one, it's not something that is sort of like made front and center in the same way where it's like, let's discuss indigenous rights, but really yeah. you get the sense of this is a world um, that is uh, clearly related and often centered on uh, the reservation. And so yeah. some light topics, light yeah. topics are covered. Yeah. And the whole time <laughs> you, you were watching it, the, the, uh, the actor and he um, is, is playing a version of himself. And so he sort of inhabits this character in a way where you're constantly kind of more aware of this as a reality mm. than you would in another film. And uh, he's a horse trainer and he has this way with horses that while watching, I was sort of like, you know, uh, an actor doesn't have this kind of earned um, uh, yeah. kind of credit and charisma with these horses that he does. So he has that genuine prior connection. So like the actor, mm-hmm. like, is this his story or is like, what's his connection to the role? It's a version of his story. Oh, I see. Um, his, his actual father and sister play his father and sister in the film. Oh. His character has a different last name. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's this very close version of yeah. his story. Um, and, and so I think it's a fascinating kind of engagement with the realities of his life and those like him, um, but in this sort of lightly fictionalized way. Okay. Well, what else should we watch? Yeah. Um, the other film is called First Reformed, and it's a new film from um, Paul Schrader. Both these films are available on, um, uh, on, on demand. You can get them at home and watch them. And it's uh, um, Paul Schrader wrote Taxi Driver. Oh, and okay. so Ethan Hawke plays a... Um, uh, a minister who is sort of struggling with potential loss of his faith. And um, his son was a, a chaplain in the military like he was, but died um, in, uh, in, um, in, not in battle, but died um, in, uh, over in Afghanistan. And okay. so his, his marriage has fallen apart. He's now working at a sort of tourist church called First Reform that has a very... <laughs> tourist yeah. church. That's <laughs> no, true. They ref- like it sells souvenirs. It's like the oldest church um, in this New England town, in this sort of New England area. So and, it's like a landmark. Yeah. And it's, so it's got kind of a very small congregation and it's, he depends on a kind of um, super church, you know, mega church for hmm. money. And, and fo- so he's, he's trying to negotiate, you know, what to do, but, in the midst of that, the film sort of takes up questions about environmentalism through the question of faith. Oh, and um, did not expect that. Yeah, at first you're like, <laughs> okay, it's about you know this church, but really, um, at one point, you know, it asks the question like, would would God forgive us for what we've done to the earth, to so God's creation? And I don't know if I've heard that question phrased so clearly before. And he's sort of like trying mm-hmm. to figure that out. Um, if you're looking for like a combo with that, it's like watch the film Mother. <laughs> watch this film. Oh God, yeah, that's gonna be a little too intense. <laughs> but uh, and this film's kind of a magical realist film. It takes a lot from kind of um, films like Diary of a Country Priest um, and this other film Ordet. And there's kind of the moments in which you don't, you're not sure if it's it's it seems so sparse in the way that it's staged, but then at times it becomes kind of magical realism. So um, another fun one like The Rider, where you're like, what is this? you know what is reality what is not here 
Okay. So it's sort of like this blend. So the next one on your list is Star is Born. Mm -hmm. has been on my list also. I have wanted to see that. So did you give it a thumbs up? I really liked it. I'm assuming. Yeah, I saw it. um, I saw it yesterday. I've been waiting to see it with my mom. um, And uh, sadly, we don't have her on to give her review, but she said she liked it as well. (laughs) But (laughs) That's uh, true. um, She wants to become a regular on our podcast. (laughs) She can just keep us posted on the status of whatever quilt she's making. Exactly. Yes. Like a check-in. Whatever movies she's gotten to see with you. (laughs) Uh, so yeah stars born and uh, you know this is the one that's getting a lot of oscar buzz directed by bradley cooper stars bradley cooper with lady gaga is this story of um you know kind of an established star that bradley cooper plays here and the kind of woman that he falls in love with who is the kind of rising star in, in the field that they're in right so i have heard some critique that you know lady gaga is supposed to be the star <laughs> that is discovered, but the Bradley Cooper has turned the lens somewhat more upon himself. <laughs> so this is why it fits within this with, movie, it fits with my theme of, of looking at masculinity because um, the second half of the film really belongs to Bradley Cooper's character, and that leaves you sometimes a little bit uh, wishing that there was more focus on um, how his his issues affect her. Um, you know, from her point of view, because it sort right. of focuses more on his experience in the second half. The first half has a kind of liveness that um, that I think really is what musicals, film musicals are about. Mm-hmm. You feel like you're experiencing their relationship as at the moment that it is growing, just in the same way that when you watch them perform on stage, it feels like this live event. Um, like you're actually watching the concert or like watching her yeah. break through. Yep. And then the second half, Uh, You know, you feel more distance from that um, because you're focusing on his experience as he becomes distant from that kind of liveness or feeling alive. I mean, I guess he's still attractive to look at, so (laughs) (laughs) not such a bad thing. I mean, I still think it's... camera on himself a little more, but I I love Lady Gaga, so I, like, was worried that maybe she, you know, got shortchanged a little or something. Well, if you think about this film as kind of a, a, a another study in working class masculinity, like it, it actually right. shares some things with the writer there. Um, not that it, you know, he's Bradley Cooper has been like a, a rock star, but he has been a film star. And um, yeah, he's pretty A-list. Yeah. He kind of comes from his character supposedly comes from a similar world in which, um, you know, he grew, grows up on a ranch and he's trying to figure out, you know, what it is to be a man mm. and sort of struggling with questions about his body and addiction. So, yeah, I see. So the, the last film you have on the list recommend is literally called First Man. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm assuming that also has a tie to this undercurrent of masculinity. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I think if you're just like looking around, you're kind of like white masculinity. What's going on? This is interesting. <laughs> like what's happening right now? Um, so first man is the story of Neil Armstrong, Damien Chazelle, who directed oh, okay. uh, La La yeah. Land. And so you're saying to yourself, Damien Chazelle, this guy has directed Whiplash, which is the story of like a drummer. Um, he's directed La La Land, which is a story of kind of a, you know, musician and actress and mm-hmm. first man, which is the story of Neil Armstrong. And, um, there's a kind of interesting engagement here again with sound, um, and in fact, I saw this movie in IMAX, and if I could recommend seeing it in IMAX, uh, I think it's hmm. it's totally worth it because the way this film is made, and this is all over the the press about it, is um, as opposed to something like Gravity or even The Right Stuff, 
Yeah. It is very, it's, it's organized around Armstrong's point of view and it's not literally his point of view all the time. Although there's an excellent VR experience (laughs) sitting in the middle Mm -hmm. of this film where he's on the moon and you're kind of looking through his visor. Um, Oh, cool. But um, the first sequence in this film, he's in kind of a, a plane that will fly just into kind of the atmosphere where he's weightless and, oh, to like practice? Yeah, and so before you know, it's before he even works for NASA. Um, but um, you get a sense of just how noisy and slapped together these things were that we were using to get to the moon. Yeah, well, I remember, so we visited the Kennedy Space Center together. Yes. <laughs> and I remember we like saw that exhibit on sort of early space exploration. And I feel like my conclusion was like, holy crap, we should not be sending anyone <laughs> into space. I mean, today's vehicles seem a little more legit but it seems like we're basically like launching people up there in these tin cans that were held together by like three nails or something (laughs) well that is exactly kind of what the sense because you know something like alien has this tagline of like in space no one can hear you scream and i was like the tagline for first man is like in space no one can hear you scream because it's so loud it's so loud (laughs) because you're like rattling around in this like (laughs) multi-million dollar like tube that (laughs) they managed to like cobble together yeah I don't the, know. And this, but the but the music How they which survived. is done by the same uh, composer that uh, Chazelle has worked with before for La La Land, and I think also for Whiplash, um, is really good too. Like I was like I would I would sort of listen to this um, this score. There's a way that it kind of is propulsive, in a way that is similar to the you know kind of the film and and the performance um, by uh, Ryan Gosling is very sort of tamped down and internalized. So a lot of work. You know, when he doesn't scream, when his daughter, you know, dies of cancer, you you're almost mm-hmm. like getting that kind of emotion suggested by the sound design. Yeah. You know, um, so, yeah. So I think um, some people are kind of saying, you know, why have this film now? What about this story is different? And I think I think the reviews put it relatively well, which is. It's again seems like another film that's thinking through, you know, what it is to be a man. This in this case, the first one to do something and how much in this like unique position and yeah. how that sort of defined his outlook. And so much or... of the film is about his relationship to his family, you know. Huh. Yeah, no, I feel like that is a take that we haven't mm-hmm. gotten before. Yep. Okay. Yep. So those are some good recs. I'll have to check them out. <laughs> um, I feel like our recommendations, the recommendations that are coming from each of us this month are like very much reflect like you've been watching movies and so as you will soon hear apparently I've been buying shoes cooking and shopping on Etsy for like (laughs) cute cartoon artwork um but so my first recommendation is one that I'm sure people have heard a lot about before so I feel like their Facebook ads are popping up all over the place but Rothy's shoes I have had now for like six months and they are legit they're like the most comfortable flats Hmm. I've ever had you can wash them they're cute they stretch out Uh, Mine are starting to get a little wear just because I wear them all the time, but they're perfect and you should buy them, (laughs) even though (laughs) they're, um, they're kind of, they're a little pricey, Um, but they're made out of like, I don't like recycled plastic that's woven into fibers or something. So I was worried that they would be uncomfortable, but they're in fact the opposite of that. (laughs) So I was, I was kind of like, I don't know how the, like that will feel, you know, like on my feet. But they've managed to make it into some sort of soft, fibrous thing um, that kind of molds to your foot. So um, if you need a new pair of, like, comfortable things to walk around and get that. And then I also recently purchased um, some new boots. And I 
kind of like half skeptically purchased these boots from Tevas, oh, wow. who make, you know, these like, right, sandal people. Um, <laughs> and so I was kind of like, I don't know, like, are those really going to be stylish enough? But they're also, it's like the comfort of the Teva sandal <laughs> brought into like a leather waterproof boot form. Hmm. And so they're actually quite nice and super, super comfy as well. Um, so there's my very shallow shoe recommendations or footwear recommendations. Um, the other rec I wanted to give, um, is more of a, a kitchen item or it is literally a kitchen item, <laughs> but, um, you know, drawing from all aspects of our life in this roundup, my Xylus garlic press, um, is the kitchen item that I feel like I use all the time. Um, so when we're thinking about sort of our favorite things to include in this round, you know, never hand mince a clove of garlic again uh, once you've bought this wonderful device. It's authorized by America's Test Kitchen, Ooh. which like if you don't know about is like they take like a very scientific approach to figuring out the best cooking methods. Um, and their recommendations for like cooking tools are always spot on because basically what they'll do is they'll research and they'll try out like every possible thing on the market um but and then in their recipes they'll try like all these different ways to achieve the desired results but this is like one of their top recommendations and it's a good one so i have one of these around here somewhere but i never use it so this is like my recommendation to finally pull it out to find it and (laughs) bring garlic (laughs) back into your life again um and then (laughs) on a totally different track um I like to sometimes go on Etsy and check out like little, little like artwork pieces and um, sort of pop culture things that I can get either for the kids room or, um, you know, for friends. And actually, Christina, there's a gift coming your way from this uh, artist who runs Roaring Softly. Hmm. And so I would like... I would say her work is kind of, it's like this original feminist artwork with kind of a pop culture influence. Um, So you may see some of our favorite television shows represented (laughs) or favorite kind of strong (laughs) female characters represented within this work. But yeah, Roaring Softly, if you go on Etsy, has some really cute stuff. And I also got this sort of um, cartoonish little rendition of all of the things that are named in the um, Sound of Music song. That's like a few of my favorite things. And Abby loves that song. So she, like, loves this piece of artwork that I got her that has, like, kittens and warm apple strudels and, like, all of these things visually depicted, if you know that song. So oh, yeah. go check yeah. out her shop. Round paper packages tied up with string. Yes, there's a picture of that as well. <laughs> um, so, it's yeah, it's sort of like this this visual version of the song. Um but so those those are the things that I've been spending my hard-earned money on lately. <laughs> um, but you know, if you like to round up our roundup, <laughs> we've we've really given you a range of things to think about. <laughs> some things for your head, some things for your heart, some things for your feet. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> some things for your stomach. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you're all set. Um, so I think that's it. We've rounded them all up. Great. Wonderful. And uh, as always, um, you can reach us at shallowresearch at gmail.com and uh, send us um, your recommendations for topics you'd like us to look into. Um, And uh, if you have anything, by the way, that that you're into that you want us to try out for the roundup as well, we'd love to do it. This is true. 
send us free samples. I mean, we can be bought. <laughs> <laughs> or just <laughs> tell us to try something and we probably will. <laughs> That's true. Maybe, I mean, if someone from Com could send Laura like a way to get the second of these other <laughs> six days of happiness. It. This is true. <laughs> My anger is rising. <laughs> but all right. Thanks, Shell okay. Research Friends. We'll see you next month. Yep. See you next month. Thank you. Listen in for some shallow research wisdom 